All right, church family, let's go and make our way back to our seats. Once again, good morning. Love to see us connecting. I know we didn't take a lot of time. Hopefully you will continue those connections after the service. But once again, good morning. It's good to worship the Lord with you all this morning. You know, we're gonna do one more thing before we jump back into God's word this morning. Um, we wanna take a few minutes to celebrate God's faithfulness as we bring to conclusion Base Camp. Um, Base Camp, as many of you recall, was a three-year journey of faith for our church family where people gave above and beyond their normal giving to help provide for the ability for us to build this building and to be able to build this new ministry tool for us. Now, Base Camp, that imagery, that, that name was picked very intentionally. And we think about Base Camp, about the people that are summoning Mount Everest. You know, Base Camp is where you go to be able to prepare, to be able to be equipped, to be sent out from, sometimes to come back to and be equipped and encouraged. We just felt like that is a great visual image of what we feel like a building is. It's not the destination. It is a tool to be used by the Lord to equip us for the mission and vision that God has given us. And so, as we think about base camp, and um, you think about the very unique season that we have been through as a church over these last three years, like if you would have laid before us when we started base camp all that was going to happen over the next three years, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have stepped out and done it, and yet God in his goodness and his sovereignty and his faithfulness led us to do base camp and praise God that he did. You know, when we asked people three years ago to make pledges about what they felt like the Lord was calling them to be able to give so that we could plan, if you put this next slide, um, this is... Um, the amount that was pledged. And this was like kind of over the top of what we expected. That was much more than I think what our initial goal was, that people pledged $4.7 million over this three-year period of time. Now, if you look at what actually has come in over these last three years, it's $4.6 million. Now, that is almost 97% of all those pledges fulfilled. And if you've ever gone through a building campaign before in another church, that number is absolutely amazing, especially considering all that's happened over these last three years. God has been so faithful and so good, and we just want to take a moment and just acknowledge his goodness and what he's provided. Amen? God is so faithful. You know, when you think about the numbers, but I think so much more than numbers is because stewardship and what God has done in our lives through this journey of faith is he's really worked in so many of our lives so much beyond the providing for this physical building. You know, I think of different stories of people stepping out of faith. I know one story that was early on was a family that was really feeling and calling, um, praying before the Lord what God would have them to commit to. And they committed a pretty big amount to where it was a pretty big stretch for their family. And then a few weeks later, their car was hit. And their car being hit, they were really wrestling with, well, do we continue to give that amount that we pledge because we kind of now need a new car? And so as they prayed, they really felt the Lord calling them to step out in faith and to keep that pledge. And then... A few weeks later, God in his faithfulness and his goodness actually provided them a new car. Someone gave them a car that was better than the car that they had before. Like that's the story of God's faithfulness through this journey. I think of other stories of people like wrestling with the Lord and being able to go to that place of sacrifice and then that leading to this great worship in their hearts over time. I think about how God did for many of us in many of our hearts, reorientating our hearts around things. You know, I think we all look to things for our satisfaction. And for to be able to have a season where many of us gave up things to be able to give sacrificially. And just to how the Lord fulfilled in so many different ways the satisfaction of our hearts by giving up different things. I think about security. How many of us are learning and learn through this journey of what true security comes from. A lot of times we want security in what we have in our bank account. But to be able to find security and really trusting in the Lord and his provision. 
I think of one story of a young adult um, who shared this last week with me, just some of the things that she was wrestling. She, as we went through base camp three years ago, was just a brand new college student, and she was kind of wrestling, like, I don't even know if I'm going to be here in three years after I graduate, and kind of wrestling through, like, do I give, and do I make a commitment? And so she wrestled with the Lord. She decided to make a pledge, really feeling like, well, I'm not ultimately giving to a building or giving to a church. I'm giving for, to the Lord. And so she stepped out, and over those years, um, she served in our children's ministry, and God has kept her here after graduation. She continues to serve in our children's ministry, and this is what she said. She said, the kids in my Sunday school class now have room to run around. I know for some of you teachers, that's not a great thing. (laughs) She says, and goes on, as the ministry events I attend are able to accommodate way more people comfortably than what we had before, and I have gotten the privilege of walking in faith with my brothers and sisters here at Mountain View. I feel like I've become more connected and part of this church body because of our joint steps of faith. And I've learned that God is constantly faithful to bring his biblical community, provide for our needs, and give us more reasons and space to worship him together. And so again, just one story and testimony of a young lady in our church. And what if you think about like this building and the season in which we have built this building, you think about all the supply chain issues, you think about all the huge escalating costs during this time over the last several years, and to realize that we finished this project basically on time. We had that two-month delay early on with steel. But then to be able to finish primarily on time, but to keep to our budget when all of the costs for supplies went up over 20% during that time is just a praise to God. Not only finishing on budget, getting some of our contingency money back, and even the loan that we took was less than what we were intending. And so all that is just God's faithfulness and his goodness, and much of that is expressed through your sacrificial giving. And so Mountain View, thank you. Thank you for what you've done to step out on faith. And I pray that not only would that bless you now and ingrain in your heart and your mind some incredible stewardship principles for the years to come, but I trust that now God has provided this base camp for us, this tool It'll bring himself much glory through that. So I just want to take a moment. Can we thank the Lord in prayer for what he's done? God, thank you. And I just thank you for the staff you provided for us that we celebrated. And Lord, we want to thank you for this building and how you provided it through the sacrificial and faithful giving of so many in this body. And I'm grateful, Lord, that it's so much more about giving, but so much more about our hearts and what you've done. So we celebrate all of it, Lord. We celebrate what you've taught us. We celebrate the end result and having this tool that we pray would bring you much glory that would simply be a tool that allow us to equip many people to be sent out to this world to make a huge difference, to live out your mission. And Lord, as we now turn to your word, Lord, I trust that there's things that you have for each one of us in your word that you want to shape us and mold us. So Lord, have your way with us this morning. Lord, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name and we give you all glory and praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn up into John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. Page 836. I think it's always good to be able to interact with God's Word on your own. 836. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. If you have ever had the privilege, church, of seeing somebody come to faith in Christ, then you know there's not too many greater joys in this world, is there? To see someone step out from death to life, to see their hearts transformed, to be able to see the bondage and the guilt of their sin, to be liberated once and for all by Jesus. Like there's few greater joys in this life. I know the times in my life where I've had an opportunity to have a front row seat to that. Like it's just something, those are some of the most special moments in my entire life. 
You know, last week I was greeting some people before they came into the service uh, on New Year's Day, and there's a newer couple to Mountain View, and um, newer to Mountain View, I've known them for actually quite a while, and they came in, they were just beaming with joy, and as I was talking to them, they were sharing with me just before the service last weekend that they'd stopped by the hospital to see their 96-year-old mother who's in the hospital, and even though they've shared with her many times over the years, and they're under the grief of not knowing if she's going to get out of the hospital, that very morning, last Sunday morning, she surrendered her heart to Jesus and believed in Christ. And she, and you could just see the joy, like as they were expressing joys of tear. And I got to enter into that joy with them. There's something joyful about seeing a life transformed by the gospel, is there not? So good. And I think most of us feel this way. Like we know as a people of God to see people we love or even strangers come to faith in Christ. There's few greater joys in this world. And yet, we know that but that doesn't always translate into the actions and the way that you and I go about living our lives. There's oftentimes barriers. There's oftentimes a lot of inertia for us to overcome to live out the mission of God in our lives. Where that barrier be like we're fearful, we don't feel prepared, we feel like, man, what if somebody asks me a question that I can't answer? Sometimes we're fearful. Other times we feel too busy or too tired or we have too many other things going on. So we think, yes, it's important, but I'll get to it later. Other times, like, we just think, man, that person, they'll never believe. They're way far too gone. They're not interested in who Jesus is. And as a result, when we buy into these different lies and these barriers, then we miss out on experiencing the joy of being on God's mission. We miss out on seeing how God is truly satisfying in Christ to others who can liberate their souls. And so today, as we continue to study through the book of John, we're going to see, man, that precious, precious example of our Lord and his interaction with the Samaritan woman. And we're going to continue to see just his followers entering into his mission as well. And I believe experience the joy of so much more greater purposefulness in their lives. And so if you, again, have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 4. If you remember, we kicked off John chapter 4 before we started our Advent series. And so because it's been a while, um, we're going to look at the second part of that interaction. I think we need to take a little bit of time to be able to catch ourselves up to speed. If you remember, Jesus said, had to travel through Samaria. That was pretty unique because the Jews of the day would not travel through Samaria, even though the, 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 the shortest distance from Jerusalem where they were to go back to Galilee was to go straight through Samaria. But good Jews went around all the way on the east side of the Jordan River because the Jews hated the Samaritans. If you remember, the Assyrians, as they conquered the Jewish people that came and they settled there and the Jews began to intermarry with them. And so the Jews would look at the Samaritans as these half-breeds. They were incredibly racist towards them. They hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated them. And yet Jesus had to be able to go, to have this special encounter with this Samaritan woman and demonstrate something really powerful for us. The fact that Jesus would have a conversation with a Samaritan is a huge deal. The fact that Jesus would have a conversation with a woman in this day is very significant. There is, again, incredible sexism when a man, clearly a rabbi or a teacher, would never in the culture lower himself by talking to a woman in public. Obviously, Jesus was not bound by that. This woman also was known, as you recall, I don't know, for her promiscuity, if you will. She was living with a man that was not her husband, had been married many times before. And she was, because of the way she lived, isolated from others. Remember, as a different women would go out and they would have to travel to the well, which is a little bit more than a half mile outside of the city of Saqqar where they lived, 
they would travel in the cool of day, usually morning or night, and yet this woman, isolated because of the way that she lived her life and the ways that people treated her, she came in the very middle of the day, in the heat of the day, and it was there that she has this encounter with Jesus where he offers her not just physical water, but the living water. Remember with me in John chapter four, it said, but whoever drinks of the water, he tells this woman, that I give him will never thirst again. That water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. For behind this woman's physical thirst that she had was a deeper spiritual thirst that we all have, that we mask in different ways. And Jesus reminds her, I am the living water. Remember, she didn't get it initially. She was still on this physical plane thinking about water. And so Jesus reveals some things about her and her past that no Jewish man traveling through would ever be able to know. And her eyes are kind of opened and she's wondering, all right, this is somebody special. Maybe he's a prophet. And it's in that moment that she's starting to see things that she begins to divert the conversation. Remember, the vulnerability is getting a little bit too much for her. So she turns the conversation towards religion and where Samaritans worship and where they worship. And that's where Jesus reveals to her that it's not about where you worship. It's not about where the placement of the temple is or will be. It's about the orientation of our hearts. It's about Jesus. And he most clearly, plainly says to this woman, he is the Messiah, this long-awaited one, the one the whole Old Testament points to. And it's their church that we pick back up in this glorious encounter. Remember, at this point, the disciples have left Jesus there alone at the well with this, and this woman has come, and they're out in the city getting some food, and now they're returning back this half-mile walk from the city. There in verse 27, let's go ahead and pick it up there. Verse 27. It says, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, why, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So that woman left her water jar and went away to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. So now the people begin the trek out to the well as well. You see this couple of things here. It says just then, at that very moment in God's perfect sovereign timing, Again, before the disciples came back to interrupt this important conversation, but not too late where they didn't see what was going on in that very moment. They came and watched Jesus interact with this woman. And it says they marveled. They were shocked. They were flabbergasted that Jesus would be talking to the Samaritan woman. You don't do that. So they thought. But Jesus did. The woman drops her water pots. And some would suggest that there's profound symbolism in that. In her eagerness to enjoy now the living water, she drops her old water vessels and she runs to town, heads back to tell others. Maybe a great picture of what repentance looks like. And remember, she goes back to the city, man. She was the outcast. She was coming in the middle of the day to avoid people. And now she doesn't care. She doesn't care. She's telling everybody about this person who told her everything about herself. She's excited to tell anybody that would hear. Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? Now in our story, in this great account of what our Lord Jesus did, we see the focus changing a little bit from the interaction that Jesus had with the Samaritan and offering living water, now to really focusing in to using this as a teaching moment for the disciples. If you remember, this is really, really early on in Jesus' ministry. And so the disciples are really being, like, seeing something foundational, not only in who Jesus is and what he came to do, but foundational in them understanding what they were to be about. Jesus is going to mark his followers, and I trust will mark us as well. 
Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him some food to eat? Again, just like that woman who was having a hard time understanding that Jesus on a spiritual plane, on a physical plane, they were still caught up and like wondering, eat? Like, did somebody bring you food, Jesus? And so Jesus begins to explain in verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Are the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps, but I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you now have now entered in to that labor. And so it's here, Jesus says, man, there is something more important than eating. Even the very food that was to sustain Jesus's life, right? Jesus and his humanity needed to eat to be able to survive just like we do. And he says, yet there's something even more than I desire more than I desire, even than physical food that, need, that I need to be sustained by. What was his food? His food was to do the will of the Father. The greater desire that Jesus had, even than taking care of the needs of his body, was doing the will of the Father to accomplish his works. See, church, that is really the main point of this passage. That our greatest desire, seen in the life of Jesus, should be desire doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. That was Jesus' food, to do the will of God, the will of the Father. So let me ask you a question, like what is the will of the Father? I know that gets us confused. That often stumps us when we think about what is the will of God? And we get paralyzed by thinking about, well, what is the will of God? But church, it's not really a mystery. He has revealed to us what to do. And yeah, we have questions and wondering about certain aspects of our life. Is it God's will that I get married? If so, What's his will? Who will I marry? What's God's will for me to do after I graduate? What's God's will for me to do where I go to school? Should I stay in this job? Should I change careers? What's God's will? Do we move? Do we have kids? Do we adopt? And again, all those things are important questions and questions, yes, that God cares about. But there's so much, church, that we already know about God's revealed will that he has made utterly clear for us. And what I found in my own life, when we focus on the things that we know to be his revealed will, the other things that we tend to have questions about resolve themselves as we abide in him, church. So what is his revealed will? Well, we know different things throughout scripture. I think 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, like says it very clearly. This is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, this is the will of God. Anybody want to hear? Your sanctification. That's what the Apostle Paul says. That God's will is for you each and every day to be shaped more and more into the image of Jesus, to be holy, to be set apart, that your life should look different. You should be salty. That is God's will for you. We know that. Now we think about other aspects of God's will, and it goes on in that passage to tell us like what's the way that we are sanctified and holy. It says, well, avoid sexual immorality. Live a pure life. There's other things that we know that are God's will. 
But particularly in this passage, the context really reveals to us the glory of what Jesus came to do to accomplish his Father's work had everything to do about his Father's intentions to redeem and restore a broken world, to bring salvation to a needy world. And so when Jesus says, I'm here to do my Father's will, we know that what he's talking about is bring salvation to the world. And Jesus found more joy in that. He found more sustenance in interacting with this woman more so than any food could ever provide. And so Jesus was swept up. He was swept up about doing the Father's will. It was his very sustenance of his life, seeing a harvest of people's souls. And so again, then he introduces this imagery of a harvest, a way of talking about seeing people come to faith, the fruit that is coming out in their lives when they are born again. Verse 35 and 38 that we just read unpacks a little bit about some of this imagery. And you think about like an agricultural setting and how some people sow seeds. You know, when you put a seed in the ground, you dig a little hole. Well, oftentimes you don't see then the fruit of that. It takes time for that plant to grow and then to bear fruit. So one sows, another reaps the harvest. Jesus told his followers to look up. The harvest is now, he said. Even though they sow, these seeds have just been sown, look up. The fields are white for harvest, he said. And Many commentators think that as they see the people now coming from the city of Sakar out to the well, having their either white robes or even white head dressings coming across those, those green hills, Jesus is saying this, the fields are white for harvest. As that Samaritan woman went back and began to share with people in the town, and again, what did this woman know at that time? She didn't know very much, but she knew that somebody offered her living water. Man, she told people what she knew. That should be a great example for us. People started coming out. Jesus reminds that some are going to sow, some are going to reap, but we're all going to enter into the joy of seeing what God does to bring about an amazing harvest. And we can rejoice no matter what part we play together in that. The disciples, with all the Samaritans coming out from the city, we're going to be part now of seeing this glory of harvest of these people coming, these men and these women. They too are going to enter into this Great joy of seeing God change the hearts of people. But you know what, church? This is not just what Jesus did. This is not just what the disciples were invited to do. But what our desire should be as the followers of God is to be about the same thing. You think about John chapter 17 that we'll get to later. Verse 18, Jesus says, as this is the high priesthood of prayer. This is when Jesus is crying out before the Father, right before he goes to the cross, and he's praying for his followers. And remember in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Fathers, you've sent me into the world, right, to accomplish his purposes. Now what does he say? Now I send you. Now you, follow of Christ, go. Now you do the same thing. Accomplish the Father's will. Be about the Father's work. Now, church, I think many of us know this calling. Certainly, if you've been at Mountain View for any length of time, like you know we talk about the mission that God has given us often. We are called as his people to make disciples who make disciples. Matthew 28, that we are called to go out to where people are and share the good news of Christ. And God uses to change their hearts as people come to faith to be able to build them up so that they go out and do the same thing. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And I know many of our hearts this morning want to be all about that. Want to be all about that. But if you look at your life, is being on mission, is being about the Father's work, the very food, the very sustenance of your life. 
Is it more important than the food that you eat or the air that you breathe? Again, I think most of us long for this. We want our lives to be about this. But as much as we desire it, as much as we see this glorious example of what Jesus was about, I think for many of us, we recognize that there are many obstacles. There are many things to overcome to actually be about this in our own lives. And I think this passage actually addresses many of these obstacles. And so I want to unpack this for us for a while, is thinking about the different obstacles in our lives that keep us from being on mission. One is I think we are really guilty. So we build these slides. I think we're really guilty that we prejudge people, just like the disciples did. To overcome that is we need to remember that God can transform anyone, church, anyone. Again, as the disciples returned, they marveled that Jesus would be having this conversation with this Samaritan woman. And again, that reveals the prejudice of the day. Yet Jesus was not prejudiced. He was not held hostage by the sexism of the day. The gospel does not discriminate. And I think many of us think, well, I'm not prejudiced and I'm not sexist. But I bet most of us prejudge people. We write people off. We assume in our mind that certain people will never believe. Maybe they have a Muslim background. Maybe they have a Hindu background. Maybe they have a Mormon background. We think they'll never believe in the true gospel. Or we see the animosity in our world right now, and we get on these weird things where we feel like the other side of whatever side you're on is the enemy, and we forget those are people that desperately need him. We think about people who are living morally, and maybe they're just kind of morally bankrupt, way morally out of bounds. We think that person will never believe, and it's often those people who are experiencing the harshness of this life that sin never fulfills. Some of those people are the most prepared. You think about maybe people in your life, maybe you've had a chance to share with them, know exactly who you are. They just seem uninterested. And so you think, ah, they'll never believe. See, I think we all prejudge people. And when we prejudge people, we actually make decisions for them. We decide before they give them a chance to believe in Christ by keeping our mouths shut. But can't God, church, change the hardest of hearts? I mean, God changed your heart. He can change the hardest of hearts. And by remembering that, I think it helps us to step out, to offer the glorious news of the gospel to anyone who God puts in our path. I think of this like really interesting social experiment that happens every day on Southwest Airlines. Some of you have flown on Southwest Airlines, and hopefully it wasn't over Christmas, and I, I actually really love Southwest Airlines. Um, I choose to fly with them. I know we have a couple employees with Southwest. It's a great company. I would, I would, I would fly with them. I'm not talking about that. Christmas was a, there was a bad week for them, but when you go to Southwest Airlines, you know they don't give you like a seat number. They actually give you a, a spot in line, and you go pick your seat, and so when you fly on Southwest Airlines, which again, I choose to often fly on Southwest Airlines, like, you kind of want the coveted middle seat, you know, because you're not packed in there by sardines. So I'm usually pretty early to get registered. So I get on there and you sit in the aisle seat or the window seat. And then you kind of get in this game where you kind of look, try to look really big and then act like you're sleeping so that somebody won't like get into that middle aisle, you know, for you. But let's suppose for a moment that you heard this message and you were so excited that you were going to use your next plane trip to shine the glory of the gospel to whoever God would put next to you. And you have the chance, because you're one of the last people to get on the plane, to actually choose which middle seat you're going to sit on. Who would you choose? I think for most of us, we prejudge and think that someone who looks like us or is like us is the one 
who would receive Christ like us. And church, I believe that God can save anyone. And therefore, we should have open hearts, be passionate to share with anyone. I mean anyone. Amen? Secondly, I think one of the things that keeps us from experiencing the joy of seeing God use us in people's lives is we tend to busy ourselves with lesser joys. The way that we overcome this is we allow God's priorities to be our priorities. More important than eating food that was needed to sustain his life, like Jesus was human. We saw he was tired at the beginning of chapter four. That's why he stayed back at the well. Jesus needed food, and yet he had a greater desire than even those things was to be able to be about the Father's business. And it's a crazy illustration even that he would use food because for most of us, we tend to busy our lives with many things that keep us from being on mission. Food's not usually on the top of that list. I think about just our culture right now, and if you ask nine out of 10 people, how are you doing? And it's almost like a badge of honor these days. What do nine out of 10 people say when you ask them how they're doing? What's the response? I'm busy. I'm busy. And I trust that that's true. But here's what I know. 10 out of 10 people are going to go to bed every single night tired. So the question is, is not going to bed tired. It's what are you going to be tired from? What are you going to use your life to invest in that you're going to be tired of the night? See, we are all in control of our lives and how we steward our time and the things that we do with our time. And I think oftentimes we fail to live out his mission because we get caught up in all these different lesser joys that aren't going to make a whole lot of difference 100 years from now. And so again, I want to encourage us, and the way that we've talked about this at Mountain View is you don't have to add a whole bunch of stuff to your busy schedule to be on mission. Simply live out your faith in Christ no matter where God has you. We talk about where you live, where you work, and where you play. Every single one of us lives somewhere. You have people that God has put into your life that you just live around. Do you have a place that you work or that you go to school in? Or you have neighborhoods that you live in where God has put you around people? How do you be intentional and purposeful just in the environments that you already are about? Let's be about the Father's business wherever we are. Amen? Like the third thing that keeps us from experiencing the joy of being on his mission is we often have this attitude. It's like, you know what? This is important, but we put it off for later. And we recognize that the time for harvest is actually right now. Jesus was emphasizing in verse 35 that the harvest is now. He said, look up, see the people coming. The time is now for this great harvest. You think about other places in scripture, he uses terminology. It was actually in our call to worship and our prayer. Luke chapter 10, verse two says, the harvest is plentiful, church, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And do you know if you're up in our offices every day at 10.02, you'll hear a whole bunch of alarms going off. Because the staff at church, we look at, because of Luke 10.02 and that call, we actually stop whatever we're doing at 10.02 every morning and actually use that as a chance to pray for you and to pray that God would send out workers into the harvest field exactly where they're at. But oftentimes we fail to do this because there's not like this sense of urgency in our lives. We get easily distracted by lesser things, and they're not bad things, but they're lesser joys. They're lesser things, and so we get distracted. We fail to often see through the lens of eternity. It's oftentimes a prayer of mine, Lord, just let me see through an eternal lens. Let me see my own life through an eternal lens because that changes the way that I live. 
Help me to see the other people around me through the reality of heaven and hell because that reality changes how we live. We often don't have this sense of urgency and as a result, we miss out on a greater joy of experiencing what God has for us. And again, I think joy is a motivation. I'm sure many of you have had plenty of sermons in the past that have tried to motivate you in the same way through guilt. Guilt doesn't work. But it's the greater joy of being part of God's mission and our love for him and of seeing his glory and his fame spread throughout his, this world and the joy of entering into that harvest, I believe, is a true motivation for our souls. Well, finally, I think one of the things that keeps us from living out and accomplishing the Father's work is, is fear. Fear's got to be one of the biggest obstacles. But what overcomes fear is to know that the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He tells this passage that some sow, plant seeds of the gospel, but they'll never see the end result, and some reap and see the fruit of that. But ultimately, whose work is it? What is it, one who sows, one who reaps? Whose work are they accomplishing? It's very clear. It's the Father's. It's not the sower or the reaper who is doing the actual work. It's the Lord of the harvest who changes the heart, who draws a person to faith, who opens the eyes of the unbelieving. It is the Spirit that changes and transforms people. Like, church, we're just simply vessels. And when we get this, man, it's just so freeing. So I think one of the biggest things that keeps us being involved in the Father's work is, man, we fear, like, I don't know what to say. What if they ask me a really hard question I don't know what to answer? And you say, I don't know. That's a great question. You get back to them. Yeah, we should think about how to be able to proclaim the gospel, and we can do that together. We can be equipped for that. But oftentimes it's fear. We respond or we have a conversation with someone, and we don't feel like they respond, and we kind of beat ourselves up like, oh man, I just wish I was more eloquent. I wish I was more intellectual. I wish I was more persuasive. Church is not dependent on your power or your strength or your wisdom or your eloquence. We're just messengers. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work and so we share. The Holy Spirit draws and when we get that, man, it's just so freeing because we just proclaim the truth and it's like a lion let out of its cage. God changes the hearts of men and women. We just sow seeds and we just sow them abundantly and we trust the Lord and how he uses them and that is really 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 freeing I remember a story that I've always remarked by one of my friend's mothers she was in her 50s or 60s and she gets a phone call from one of her sorority sisters in college and says Mary I want you to know do you remember when we were sitting at that bar in college and you were talking to me about Jesus Mary's like I didn't know if she really remembered that or not she said well go on she goes I know I didn't respond that night I know I probably even made fun of you but I've been thinking about that for the last 30 years. And I want you to know that I just have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to know. Mary just sowed seeds. She didn't know what was going to happen with those. I think of like my own life, you know, because I came to faith my freshman year in college. And I look back at like my teenage years. And I remember there's was, there was one friend of mine. Her name was Jenny. And she was a follower of Christ. And in her like kind of messy way, she would try to tell me about Jesus and I wasn't there yet. I didn't, was not interested in Christ yet. She was just kind of faithful. Junior high, high school, tell me about Jesus. And it wasn't until I got to college and other people sowed different seeds in my heart where God just at that moment opened up my eyes to believe and God changed my heart. And that very first night I came to faith, it was in January of my freshman year. Do you know who the first person I called that night was to celebrate? It was my friend Jenny, who had been planting little seeds of the gospel. 
I said, you gotta come over, I got some news to tell you. And so as I shared with her about Christ transforming my heart, like we both just like rejoiced together. Church, God is the one who works. We just need to be faithful to plant seeds and to be able to sow seeds and be generous in the way that we do so. And as we do that, God provides his mighty harvest. And that's exactly what we see as we close this passage. Verse 39. Verse 39. Many Samaritans are now coming back from the woman's testimony from the town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. They believed him to be able to come because she said, he told me, all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And so he, Jesus, and his disciples stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves now. And we know that this is indeed what? This is indeed, Jesus is the savior of the world. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And so now it's not just a Samaritan woman that's been impacted by Jesus, who's been transformed by her, but she's sharing what she knew. And again, it should really mark us. She didn't know much, but what she did know, she shared. And so these people come for themselves, and we see many more believe. We see this multiplying effect of this woman's life on this city. Mighty harvest that was reaped that day. Verse 42 reveals to us a great truth about who Jesus is. It says he is the Savior of the world. Now, this is pretty significant when you think about him being the savior of the world. When we think about Jesus' heart as he came, and we know that Jesus spent most of the time ministering to his own, the Jewish people, but here we see the first time in the New Testament actually cross-cultural evangelism. We see this is always going to be the heart of God. We'll see the church go forth and the book of Acts and being spread through persecution, Acts chapter 8 through Philip, being able to share the gospel with the, Philippian, or with the Samaritans as well. And we see it pushing out to the ends of the world. All this should help us to reveal that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He has a heart for all peoples, and thus so should we. Man, it is an amazing church what we witnessed. Jesus being so caught up and being about the Father's will that that took precedent over everything else to accomplish his work. And church, what if we too, what if we too were about the Father's will in our life? seeking to be about the Father's work, to hold out the hope of Jesus, to bring the living water to anyone around us? What if we were to embrace this mission for our lives? What kind of joy would we experience? What kind of fruit would we see? What impact would we have on our city, on our schools, on our nation, on the world, when we simply follow Jesus' example here of being about the Father's work to make him known to a world that desperately needs him. And church, I believe the time is now. The time is now. You know, think about this last season as a church. Like, we've been working hard at setting up base camp. Every family goes to different seasons. Like, we've had a season where we've had to focus some time and some energy to be able to set up base camp. Base camp's not the destination. This building is not the destination. This building is simply a tool to equip us to send us out to a world that desperately needs him. Church, this is no time to get comfortable. This is no time to sit back. Now is the opportunity to be about the Father's work, to spread his glory and his joy to a world that desperately needs him. And I gotta tell you, church, I'm convicted going into this new year about being about the Father's work. 
Look at the last couple years, and I could say the last couple years, I think I've been busier than I've ever been. But I know that I've not been busy and being intentional and purposeful to invest in people's lives and to hold out the hope of Christ and to be courageous with people around you. I feel like as one of your pastors, I've been a horrible example over that in the last couple of years. And so I'm walking into this new year just being like, God, would you please work? Would you work in my life? So I'm trying to evaluate, like, where do I live, work, and play as opportunities and environments to be able to shine him? And so where I work is a little bit challenging because I work at a church and most of people are believers that I work around or we got bigger problems, right? So work's not really a field for me. I'm also wrestling because of where I play. Like I haven't had environments where I play. Where I've played the last 20 years is where my kids have played. It's all the sports that they've done. That's been a great mission field for Susan and I. And yet that season's over for us. I have no more sports with my kids anymore. Young is getting ready to graduate. So I'm wrestling my own heart. What are the things that I enjoy and that I want to do? And where do I put myself out there? And really thinking about where I live. You know, we love our neighbors. We've built some good relationships with our neighbors. But I'm just praying that this year, Lord, would you help us to be more intentional, more purposeful, to spend time and be able to show not only through our actions the love of Christ, but to be bold and to be courageous and to talk about Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. And so I pray that same thing for each of us this upcoming year, no matter where you uniquely find yourself. I think for some of you students, do you realize that as a student that you're going to have probably one of the most significant opportunities in all of your life to impact people around you? There's not going to be very few times in your life that you're going to have the amount of people that are around you that you can influence. And you think about at the time of life that many students are in where they're building the foundations of their life. They're trying to figure out what their identity is. And you, as a young person who's finding your identity in Christ, can have an incredible impact on those around you as you share how their true identity can be found in Christ. I think about how many young adults that we have. And as Apostle Paul is true, where he says it's better to be single, to be able to use your season of singleness, no matter how long that is, to be about the Father's will and to be about this time that you're just relentless to be able to focus in on the mission that God has given you. I think about many of you young marrieds. There's something about marriage that I feel like so many people have the wrong perspective, where you get married, you think it's all about marriage. Let me remind you, if you're getting ready to get married, you've just gotten married, you'll never fulfill each other. Marriage is not about you being married. Marriage is about two people coming together to use their gifts together now to worship and to be about the Father's will. And you have the chance as a young married couple to set the very foundation of your life towards that. I think about those of you who are starting to have kids and now the opportunity to make disciples is not just outside of your home. Now it becomes inside of your home. I think if your kids get older, the chance that you have to be able to partner with your kids, to be able to reach their friends like many have done in this church over the years. It's beautiful. I think about entering into the empty nester season like myself and now having the lack of all these kids' activities to be able to be freed up in different ways to be about the Father's will. I think about grandparents and now having this great chance to influence the next generation. I think about being retired and I am so grateful that on our pastoral team that we have somebody who's retired. You know, Greg is such a great example of someone retired from business. But actually, now that he's retired, spends almost all of his time being about the Father's work. It is such a great example for me, such a great example for our pastor team, such a great example for this church. So church, as we head into this new year, man, let's be about it. Let's enter into his joy. Let's be faithful with where we are, the divine opportunities that God gives us uniquely as we walk through life 
and the different spheres, spheres of influence that he's given us. Church, this upcoming year, let's be about the Father's work. Amen? You know, I think about, um, we're going to go into communion and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I think, again, the greatest motivation that we can have to be about his work is to be fresh in the gospel. And so God gave us the gift of communion and the Lord's table to be able to continually, week after week, be reminded of the glory of the gospel. And so we're going to do that this morning. And because being able to be fresh in what Jesus has done for us and how he's loved us, that's the fuel that helps us then to hold out the hope of Christ to other people. So as we take communion, let's be reminded of the way that God has loved us. Let's also, as we get ready to take communion, let me lead you with this passage in Matthew chapter 5. It says this. Jesus reminds us that we are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how shall it be salty? How shall that salt be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so church, as we begin to prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table, let the worship of what Jesus has done for us propel us, the sweetness of the gospel, to motivate us to share it with others. And let me encourage you, use this passage in Matthew chapter 5, that maybe the reality is your life's not very salty because your life looks quite a bit like those around you, your neighbors and your coworkers. And maybe it's time. It's time to be different. It's time to be set apart. And maybe you've been hiding for whatever reason. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's lack of urgency. Whatever it may be, and you're hiding that light. Church, it's time to let the light shine because this world desperately needs it. So let's use a time of communion to prepare our hearts. And even if there's repentance that's needed, as we pass the elements, go ahead and hold on to them. We'll partake together. And just always remind that communion is a chance. It's not a religious thing. So if you're not a follower of Christ, what we're doing in communion is we're remembering what Jesus has done for us. If you're not a follower, just let the elements pass. Better yet, believe in him, trust in him. You need him just as much as I need him. Let today be the day of salvation. So as the worship team comes up, as the ushers come forward, let's go ahead and pray. God, as we head into this time of communion, Lord, we want to reflect on the goodness of your call in our lives as your followers to be on your mission, to be about your work. And Lord, you know the different ways that we have struggled in that over the last several years, and we pray for our own souls and for our own hearts right now that you would allow us to be overwhelmed by the glory of the gospel to the point where it just overflows into people's lives around us. And so, Lord, would we be about that mission? And would you help us as we reflect on the goodness of the body that you broke for us and the blood that you spilt for us to be the motivation that we have to be able to worship you with all of our lives and to make you known to a world that desperately needs you? Would you use this time of communion for our hearts? We pray these things in your name.